Hello. It's August 30th, 2023. My name is Simone, and this is a special edition of 90s Crime Time. Hello and welcome to a brand new special edition episode of 90s Crime Time. And if you're new to 90s Crime Time, welcome to the show. And why is it a special edition episode today? Well, today's episode is a mini-sode, which means this episode is going to be a little shorter than most episodes of 90s Crime Time. So that's why it's being what it's called today, a special episode. Like always, I hope you all have had a great week so far and will be having a great rest of your week. And um, this story is going to be slightly brief and pretty much straight to the point with a little bit of background. And with that, let's dive in to today's mini-sode. The year was 1994, and in the city of Spokane, the second largest city in the state of Washington, many people like to catch a show at the local and revered Fox Theater, cheer on their local ice hockey team, the Chiefs, or maybe spend some time at one of Spokane's beautiful parks. Because hey, after all, the state of Washington as a whole was considered like it is today one of the most beautiful in the country. Sometimes as well, many locals like to take their families camping in the area due to Spokane's well-known hiking trails and campgrounds. And speaking of families, reports state that Spokane at that time was one of the best places in the country to live and raise a family. However, In June of 1994, an event so horrific took place in Spokane County that it would leave many people frightened and wondering if they were raising their families in such a great place. In the following case, you'll find out what awful event happened here. The investigation and the aftermath in a case I title, Unhinged. On the afternoon of June 20th, 1994, in Spokane County, Washington, the staff at the local Fairchild Air Force Base Hospital were seemingly having a normal day of work, with nurses and doctors working with and treating military personnel, their families, and military veterans, amongst others. 
However, around 3 p.m. that afternoon, panic was set when the people at the hospital were alerted that something tragic was going on. A gunman was on the loose at the base. People ran for cover and tried to avoid the supposed gunman in any way they could. Then, staff, patients, and their families heard what sounded like gunshots coming from the annex at the hospital. At the annex were independent medical offices that connected to restrooms and the main hospital. And it was also next door to the hospital's cafeteria as well. For those who were not able to run away in time, they witnessed a man dressed in black with a slight smile on his face, carrying a long gun, spraying the hallways with gunfire, hitting almost anyone in sight. Reports state the gunman then walked through the annex, through the hospital, and then to the cafeteria, where he shot fleeing diners. After about five minutes of causing carnage in the hospital and annex, reports from witnesses state the gunman then focused his sights on the fleeing people in the hospital's parking lot. He chased down people as they headed to their cars and shot at them one by one. Some of them he hit, and some of them, thankfully, he missed. However, during his rampage in the parking lot, as the gunman made his way to harm more people, a military police officer patrolling on his bike noticed the gunman and took action. He ordered the gunman to drop his weapon. But then, after getting no response, he took his gun from his holster, drew his service revolver, and shot and killed the gunman with two shots to his head. Shortly after the gunman's rampage was over, he had killed four innocent victims along with his own demise. The total count was five dead at the scene, along with 21 others wounded. At the crime scene, while investigators were sorting out what exactly happened, one of the most important factors was to find out who exactly the gunman was and they didn't have to search too long for identification because they learned that the gunman was a fellow soldier once housed at the base. And his name was Dean Melberg, age 20 years old. So who exactly was Dean Melberg, and why did he commit such carnage on a base he once lived at? Well, let's go back a few years to 1974 when he was born to get a little background. Reports state that sometime in 1974, a couple in rural Waverly, Michigan, by the names of Gary and Lois Melberg, welcomed their son Dean to the world and he was their second-born, as they already had a son named Tobin. According to reports, as Dean grew older, he was known to be quiet, shy, and a very big loner. 
He would play every once in a while with some of his fellow neighborhood kids, and he was mannerable. But when he was school-aged, he kept to himself even more. One neighbor he had that he grew up with told reporters, quote-unquote, He wasn't really an open person. I rode the school bus with him, and he used to sit in the back all the time. If people talked to him, he'd be afraid they would hurt him or something. The reason why Dean may have been so closed off was because reports state that as he entered high school at Waverly High, Dean was the target of much ridicule from his fellow students. Many students would call him names and make fun of his acne on his face many, many times. One former classmate of Dean even told reporters that many students were straight up awful to him. In response, Dean barely talked to anyone at school. But another report states he did manage to make a few friends in school and eventually joined the chess team and the school choir. Or some state he sang well and even cracked a few jokes or two during downtime. However, overall, Dean was known as one of the quietest kids in school and one of the most frequently bullied. But after he graduated high school in 1992, Dean decided to make a change in his life and join the United States Air Force. Dean always wanted to join the Air Force, and once he enlisted and made it through basic training in late 1992, in San Antonio, Texas. By April 1993, Dean was stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane. Dean was assigned the job as an aircraft maintenance technician, and he seemed to like his job. But reports state, although he was content with this position, Dean was having trouble in his barracks. A report states that Dean and his fellow roommates would frequently argue about minuscule things. And many times, his roommate felt uneasy around him. It's unclear what made the roommate uneasy about Dean, maybe because he didn't talk much. And it's also unclear what exactly Dean and the roommate argued about. But things became so uncomfortable to the roommate that he complained about Dean's behavior to their commander. Even though the commander apparently tried to smooth things over between the two, the commander also noticed how Dean apparently acted a little strange, behavior-wise, and he recommended him to the basis psychiatrist, Major Tom Brigham, and the basis psychologist, Alan London, for counseling. Of course, due to privacy reasons, there's no public record about what the mental health team discussed with Dean. But according to reports, after a few sessions, doctors Bingham in London diagnosed him as obsessive, paranoid, and possibly dangerous, and they recommended discharge. However, a superior officer said he could remain in the service as long as he did his job. But that decision did not last long, because Dr. Brigham in London escalated Dean's behavioral situation and reports state 
got Dean sent to Wilford Hall, the Air Force's psychiatric hospital in Texas, and recommended that Dean receive treatment and eventually be discharged. So in March 1994, Dean was sent for treatment in Texas. By this time, Dean knew that Dr. Brigham and London were pushing for his discharge, but he was very angry and fought to appeal the decision. So he appealed for support to his home state of Michigan's then Air Force Inspector General and his hometown congressman. It's unclear if Dean got their support, but what is known is that instead of being discharged, he was ordered returned to active duty and assigned to Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. However, even here, Dean's behavior caused concern. And here, after only a month in May 1994, Dean was discharged for a character and personality disorder. A report states about his discharge, quote, the 20-year-old airman received an honorable discharge, was escorted off base, and released without any plans for treatment or mental health follow-up. End quote. By this point, after trying to find support and plead his case to anyone who would listen, and realizing it wasn't getting him anywhere, Dean snapped. Although it's unclear where Dean went after his final discharge, a month later, on Wednesday, June 15, 1994, Dean made his way back to Washington and checked into the Arnold Motel, 30 miles away from Fairchild Air Force Base. Reports state he gave the staff no problems, seemed nice enough, and made no inkling of the carnage he was about to commit. On the same day of his check-in, Dean bought a Mac-90 semi-automatic assault rifle from a federally registered gun dealer in Spokane and a 75-round magazine at a local sports goods store. And as the days went on, Dean's anger kept boiling higher and higher. Five days later, on June 20th, Dean checked out of the motel a little after 1 p.m., and waited 10 minutes for a cab to take him to Fairchild. With him was the MAC-10 concealed in a duffel bag, and he was dressed in all black. When he requested for the driver to drop him off at the base's hospital, which sat outside the security gate, reports state Dean went into the men's room of the annex where mental health services were located, took the gun out of the bag, and attached the clip. He then hunted down Dr. Brigham and London, and when he found them, 
he shot and killed them. Dean then left the annex building and walked across the street to the hospital, firing randomly. And while doing so, he shot many bystanders and killed eight-year-old Kristen McCarron. Dean then moved to the parking lot and began firing and chasing anyone in his sight. And he shot and killed 39-year-old Anita Linder, a mother of three, as she was fleeing for safety. Reports state that as Dean crossed the hospital lawn, by this time, base security and police had been given hundreds of calls for help. Eventually, security policeman Andy Brown ordered Dean to stop and drop his weapon. Dean refused, and as he was prepared to shoot again, his gun jammed. And then Officer Brown shot and killed Dean, ending his rampage. A report states, in the months and years that followed the massacre, many changes occurred at the base and in the Air Force. For one, the base medical complex was enclosed within the base security fence, accessible only through a guarded gate. Another report states, quote, the Air Force changed some procedures for handling personnel with mental health problems, clarifying forms and making it harder for commanders to override a doctor's discharge recommendation, end quote. The base also did retraining for superiors regarding medical wording. For example, when doctors Brigham and London stated in their official recommendation that Dean be, quote-unquote, process for disposition. A superior officer interpreted that to mean Dean should have been reassigned, but what they meant was discharged. Also, a report states that the Air Force as a whole now has what it calls an active shooter program. Designed to identify a person at risk of hurting himself or others. Among the red flags are people who express anger towards the military, thoughts of harming people or feeling trapped or threatened in some way. Staff who notice such activity are trained to contact supervisors or if they perceive an imminent threat to call security. Lastly, a report states that after the massacre, Victims and families of the victims of Dean filed lawsuits against the Air Force, pretty much saying they knew what danger Dean was, and had they stepped in earlier, this could have all probably been prevented. 
After they were facing a trial in 2001, the Air Force settled the claims for $17 million. In the days after the massacre, when asked for comment about his son Dean's actions that day, his father Gary told reporters, quote-unquote, We're just sorry for the victims. The story of the 1994 massacre at the Fairchild Air Force Base comes from the sources of the New York Times, the Lansing State Journal, the Spokesman Review, and others I'll put in the notes. Well, that was a very, I think, interesting yet intense mini-sode. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Um, I know if you have been a, a follower and viewer, well, not viewer, <laughs> listener of 90s Crime Time, the podcast, you'll know that I usually do a short opinion, tell you what I think about certain cases. But this time around, I want to know what you all think. Um, look out this weekend for a, a video uh, summary of the case on Instagram and I, or maybe Facebook. I may put it on Facebook this time around, too. I have been really slacking on uh, 90s Crime Times Facebook, but I may put it on both platforms. Um, a video summary of this case of the Fairchild Air Force Base Massacre of 1994. And just tell me what you think about this case. Um, like I said, this this week, I may I probably will not. Uh, well. Not probably I'm recording now. <laughs> Excuse me, guys. But I will be passing along the opportunity for you guys to do a short opinion piece about what you think of this case when I put up a video summary if you follow 90s Crime Time on Instagram or social media. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition mini-sode of 90s Crime Time. And I hope you did find the story interesting, even though it was a little intense. Um, if you liked what you heard on the show today and haven't already, I would love for you to leave a high-rated review if you listen to 90s Crime Time on a platform that has a rating system. And if you leave a written review, I hope you all are nice, because again, I don't mind constructive criticism, just try not to be too mean. Um, I do take con constructive criticism well, but sometimes I've seen some reviews in the past. I haven't looked at reviews in a while, but... Um, when I have lived, sometimes it can be quite mean, in my opinion. And, you know, I try. I do try. I don't have high quality equipment, but I did bring you the show that you all um, begged me for a few years ago. And I have enjoyed the ride for the most part. There's been some hiccups and things along the way, but I do appreciate you all who've been here from the beginning and the new uh, people as well. I am trying to get better every time I write and record, believe it or not. Um. Also, I do plan on a full episode to be released no later than this weekend. I know it's Labor Day weekend for um, us Americans, um, but I hope you do uh, listen in once I release that new episode, hopefully no later than this weekend. Um, I still have a lot going on in my personal life, but I do try my hardest to have episodes out as frequently as possible. But in the meantime, until the latest episode, check out 90s Crime Time on social media, primarily Instagram, where I post other 90s cases and where I will be doing the um, mini-sode video summary this weekend. Usually Thursday through Sunday, check out new posts from 90s Crime Time. 90s Crime Time. Can't even say my own show, guys. <laughs> 90s Crime Time. And with that, stay safe and healthy, and I will see you soon for a full length 
brand new episode of 90s Crime Time.